Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Espinosa-Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Before we start today, I want to share an incredible milestone here at Good Grief. Ten years and two days ago, Good Grief's first episode aired. In that episode, I told my own story of loss and how I came to host the show. In the 10 years since I've since I've interviewed nearly 500 people who share with me the pr- profound insight that there is more to grief than suffering, and that by engaging with our mourning, we sometimes, even often, find great beauty in our lives going forward. This simple truth sustains me with every client I see as a grief counselor, every presentation or speaking engagement I offer to the public, and certainly every hour of the Good Grief Show. I'm deeply grateful that you've joined me here, and I hope you find these conversations each week meaningful. Today, I'm welcoming Jennifer Kramer Miller. Jennifer's a writer, speaker, wellness mentor, and gratitude advocate. Her work is featured in Brevity Blog, The Sunlight Press, Grown and Flown, Mamalode, the Irma Bombeck Blog, The Kindness Blog, The Star Tribune, and Minnesota Physician. She's the 2023 through 26 board chair for the National Kidney Foundation serving Minnesota and a contributing writer for the National Kidney Fund Kidney Stories newsletter. She works as a wellness facilitator named Joy Scouter to help others manage uncertainty, move forward with hope, and find some joy. She lives in a suburb of Minneapolis, Minnesota with her witty lover of golf husband and her waggy lover of treats pup. I have one of those. And today (laughs) we're talking about her book, Incurable Optimist, Living with Illness and Chronic Hope. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much, Cheryl. I am so happy to be here and congratulations on 10 years. That's quite a milestone. I, I, it kind of snuck up on me. That's a long time. Yes, but it probably went by in a blink. I love these conversations and I'm so happy to have you here today. I was I was telling you before we came on air how much I love being with someone who is willing to go deeply into grief and pain, but also has a sense of humor. So I really appreciate that com- combination in you and um, people that go to look look at the book to find the book will certainly pick that up right away. Thank you so much. Yeah, that is really important. We go through a lot of hard things and, you know, grief can affect us in so many ways. And a a lot of times people, I think they just think it means that somebody has died, but there are so many forms of grief, which are just really how we manage loss. And there's so much loss that we all experience in our lives in different ways. So um, I do find that having a sense of humor as you muddle through it all is pretty important. Pretty important. And for you, um, 
you know, this resonates for me because my wife was sick for 10 years before she died. So there was the the um, you might die part, which I know is familiar to you. There was yeah. also the chronic illness part, which um, and both of those, when it happens at a younger age, are a severe loss of the future that you envisioned. Yes. So let's start with that. You were diagnosed at 22, and I wonder if you can share with listeners a little bit about that time and um, how you came to know that you were ill and just kind of start us off. Yes. Well, the book and the story kind of begins when I was 22 years old. So 30 some years ago, I'm in my 50s now. And I had just graduated from college. I went to uh, the University of Puget Sound. It's a really idyllic little campus in the Pacific Northwest. And I graduated with a business degree and a psychology minor. And I was ready to go. I was ready to launch. I lived with my best friend in a pretty apartment. I got this public relations position I was very excited about. And just all of a sudden, I woke up one day and my eyes felt puffy and I felt off. Um, so I went to a doctor like you would expect. And But what I expected was something medically familiar, you know, flu or a virus, something with a quick fix. But I learned that I had uh, kidney damage. And I learned that through protein that was found in my urine. And when you have protein in your urine, that's not a good thing. The little filters in your kidneys should keep protein in, just like a coffee filter should not let coffee grounds spill into your coffee pot. So when I learned that, I, I was told I needed a biopsy to find out the cause and extent of this damage. And the biopsy showed that I had a disease with two words attached to it, which are not good words to have attached to a disease you've recently been diagnosed with. And those words were progressive and incurable. Mm -hmm. So six months later, I had kidney failure and I was 23 at that point. And I really felt like I'd been ripped from my rightful place in the world. I mean, I was was very young and doctors were all of a sudden talking about my quality of life. And that phrase in itself, I mean, it sounds like a mundane phrase to everybody maybe now, but when I was 22 and people were talking about my quality of life, I was like, what, what is that even? Why does that apply to me? I'm just going to have a good life. Like who thinks about their quality of life at that age? So yeah, I really was all of a sudden thrown into this very difficult um, illness, and I was young and not very well equipped to even understand what that meant. One thing that uh, you know, I've worked with mostly in the cancer world, but in some other worlds too, with younger people in the twenties, thirties, in particular, who have an illness that's you know, they have to deal right. with over a long period of time. And one thing that's true is even at uh, in our 30s and 40s, my wife and I hadn't known people. We knew a mm -hmm. lot of people. She was diagnosed and, you know, but we didn't know people that were going through the same thing. Um, and everyone else kind of goes forward and and you're stopped by it. And now that I'm 70... Um, almost everyone I know has either themselves faced an illness or someone close or they've lost a parent. It's a very different landscape that way. Did yeah. you have 
anyone that had a way to relate to what was happening with you? Certainly nobody my age, um, which was part of what made it so difficult because I remember thinking, of course, why me? I think we all go through a little bit of a why me. Um, And I just thought nobody else knows anything about what I'm going through and they'll they have no way to understand it. So what I did is I sort of went into this kind of denial and I don't even know if it was denial. I just didn't know what was going to happen. And I thought, okay, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to get a kidney transplant. So I had kidney failure. I had to be on dialysis. And for your listeners who don't know that much about kidney disease, When your kidneys fail, there's only two ways to survive. One is on dialysis, which is an artificial kidney machine, and it replaces on a part-time basis the function of your kidneys. So you don't feel as good. You don't feel the same, but you stay alive. And a kidney transplant is gold standard treatment for kidney failure. You get a new kidney and can resume a much more normal life, although you'll always have medical management. So I thought, okay, I'm just... I'm going to power through this and I'm going to get this kidney transplant and then I'm going to return to my life in Seattle. So my mindset was just get through this small chunk of time and then I get to go back to normal. And that was what I kept thinking is I'm going to go back to that place, back to that place. But what ended up happening was I got my first transplant after a year and eight months of dialysis. And we can talk more about that because that was the heavy grief process. And also, um, I really appreciated, I knew some things about uh, dialysis and transplant and, you know, but the detail you went into was really helpful in terms of um, capturing the experience of it. All those details are where the experience lives aren't they? And Yeah. And I've had a lot of people, so many people, there was actually a woman who came to a book event that I just had did recently in Seattle and I signed her book and she was weeping, telling me that her father is on dialysis and she had read the book and felt so much more connected to what he was going through. And she just thanked me for bringing that to light for her. And, um, and even, nurses who work on the transplant floor at the University of Minnesota reached out to me and said, I think that we should all read this because now we understand more about what the patient is actually experiencing. That really resonates because I have a, um, my niece, my niece's husband, my nephew-in-law is a kidney transplant surgeon. Oh, great. I'm definitely going to recommend your book to him because that sense of being able to get a little bit inside of the mind of the person on the other side yeah. of, the, of the relationship just seems so helpful to me. Yeah, I think that um, I've been really, it's been very rewarding to hear that from from all sorts of people, people who know patients who are kidney patients, people who are kidney patients, and they say, you've put into words what I felt, but I didn't, you know, I'm not a writer. And, and then all sorts of patients. I mean, this has been what has kind of blown me away a little bit in, in a wonderful way about the book is... It's the fact that we all go through things in our lives, and really sometimes the most idiosyncratic of things can be the most universal. And so I've had people 
way beyond any kidney ailment relate to this book um, with you know, people buying the book for friends who have cancer and asking me to sign a message of resilience and hope or people who are just, I mean, I can't even list all the things where I didn't see that connection and feel so good that that has been a connection in such a universal way. And it just underscores what I believe is that we all, I think we mentioned this before we talked, we all just are sort of muddling through and we all experience grief and loss. And how do we do that? So it's nice that we can have these conversations because I think we all need to sort of have have a way forward when we deal with such hardships. Yes. And also there's an evolutionary process. Um, you know, I, I think a lot about the word resilience. I've, I've led a lot of resiliency trainings, you know, yeah. because people identify me as someone who knows about resilience, but sometimes it's a little, a little bit, that word connotes kind of strong like bull or, you know, but actually I find it very supple. People who, who are very resilient, it's about being able to respond to the truth of what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, not so much being strong or, you know, <laughs> yes, ish, yeah. right. And right. I, that applies to you that uh, the impression I get from the book, it's a strong impression, is that you started out trying to positive through it. Mm -hmm. And that's a first stop for, for bunches of people. And it's, to me, it's very much reinforced by the positive thinking movement mm -hmm. that we can affect our health with positive thinking. Yes. And I think I think we could say that also leads to trouble sometimes if it's not real. <laughs> yes. It leads to um it leads to pressure. I I I read a lot of books at the time that I was diagnosed and and my dad um is and was a Dale Carnegie advocate and he he always, you know, he loved the book How to Stop Worrying and Start Living and he would, you know, give me these little tips before I ever had any health problems about, you know, think of the worst possible thing that could happen and accept it. And once you've done that, then you can handle anything. And and so he was just, he had a very um, positive way about handling life as a custom home builder, because in that industry, it's up and down and up and down. And so he kind of learned how to weather the up and downs of his economic profession and, and business. But I remember he got me the Bernie Siegel book. Um, now I'm going to blank on the name. Love, Med Love Medicine and Miracles. Yes, Love Medicine and Miracles. Yes. And I read I, that the start of what I was trying to sort out. Yes, sure. it was like the book to read. And, and, and I did like the book. I mean, I, I inhaled it because I wanted everything to get better. And so I was reading about these exceptional patients and how their mind could help them cure their cancer and all these miraculous things. And I was like, well, great. You know, if that's all I have to do, I can do that. Like I can be super positive and I can make this go away if my mind will do the trick. Um, but it didn't work. It didn't work in the way that... You know, I had kidney failure. It didn't prevent kidney failure. Um, 
And so then I felt this pressure, like now what's wrong with my mind? If that didn't work, does that mean I'm not an exceptional patient? So I had to filter. That's the obvious danger, isn't it, Jennifer? Yeah. And I had to filter that out. That that you're going to eat your own tail. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because I thought, well, I guess I can't be in the Bernie Siegel book. I'm not going to be one of those patients that, but, but I didn't want to come down so flip-flop on the other side that this was a terrible book because it wasn't. I liked the book. And what I learned is that whatever I'm going through, I can't control the outcome, but what I can control, I will. And to be hopeful and positive that I'm going to make it the best I can, that is something that fuels me in a positive way. So if I can let go of the fact that I can't make something happen, but I can take my ability to make the best of what happens, I'm better off. And I so I filtered through what part of it was something I could control, and I went forward with that. I like the word influence a lot. You, you've obviously, obviously influenced your experience of kidney disease yes. in, in so many ways. And that doesn't necessarily mean you can control the, as you're saying, control the outcome. I think that's maybe the heart of my message as well. That yeah. sure, you know, what's your best response? Do that. It may have a profound influence you don't even know about yet. Right. But necessarily control. So let's come back to that after the break and talk more. And meantime, meantime, listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or is that X these days, LinkedIn, etc. And you can sign up for my email list. I have a new, brand new website. And I'll be starting a a newsletter very soon, so probably January 2024. To find Jennifer Kramer Miller, go to jenniferkramermiller.com. Be back soon. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. 
Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Espinosa-Jones, and I've been talking with Jennifer Kramer-Miller about her book, Incurable Optimist, and her lifelong uh, experience dealing with chronic illness. And um, before the break, of course, we were we were kind of laying out the groundwork of where this all started at such a young age and how it took you out of the, the flow of your life. And um, I wonder if you could share something from the book about that uh, sure. to give people a real sense of of how it all started for you. Yes, I would be happy to. I will read from um, chapter three in the book. The name of the chapter is Punch. And this is right at the point where I was told I needed to have a biopsy to determine what was going on with my kidneys. The next morning, I sprawled face down on a stiff rolling bed in a sterile hospital room. While I waited for the procedure to begin, the thin blanket that covered me was no match for the cold, circulating air. My muscles twitched. While my parents sat nearby in the nearby waiting room, a nurse by my side shot a magic elixir into my IV, and within seconds, the tense, frosty edges melted away. Dr. Brown stood next to me. How do you feel? He asked. Floaty. A squirt. Cold, slimy gel on my back. Dr. Brown explained he would place five tiny needles into one of my kidneys, guided by ultrasound. Afterward, we'd know more about why my kidneys leaked protein. You will feel pressure and hear a loud click from the needle punch, Dr. Brown said. His description was accurate. The pushing sensation was painless, but the sound startled me as if a cap gun fired into my back. We've done one, okay? Now we will do a couple more. Push, pressure, punch, click, wince, breath. 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 I could not believe this was happening. I was fine less than two weeks ago. We've got some good samples, Dr. Brown said. Now we wait. I want you to stay on bed rest for 24 hours. An attendant wheeled me from the procedure room, deep in the bowels of the hospital, up to my room on the fourth floor. A nurse placed sandbags on my back to prevent bleeding. As instructed, I lounged as still as possible, but my insides fluttered. What the hell? 
Every story begins with a domino moment that starts a chain of events. My first domino had fallen. I had common goals for my life at the time, as 20-somethings do. I planned to launch into a public relations career after my performance as a star intern. In my professional dealings along the way or in my robust Pacific Northwest social circle, perhaps I would meet a rom-com worthy guy. A soulmate? Sure. He would be so rock solid, so handsome, so irreverent. Oh, the laughter and deep connections that I would regularly think, how can I be so lucky to have caught this guy? Though Nick and I had been dating for a few years, he wasn't the one I envisioned in this scenario. Mr. Perfect and I would live blissfully in a lovely and oh-so-happy home where I'd whip together meals that would be today's version of Instagram food porn. And like a cherry on top, I'd pump out photogenic babies and display my perfect family on annual holiday cards. All the while, gracefully keeping it together as a how-does-she-do-it professional career woman. Nicely wrapped up and tied with a bow. Well, maybe that's the amped up and glossy version. But boiled to the essence, my peers and I expected to travel a path that led us into the epitome of adulthood. Career, love, family. Up until this point, happy was my default setting. I'd never really considered an alternate state. And now, plucked from the West Coast in Puget Sound, I shivered in the frigid winter of Minnesota, in a hospital with mom, dad, Dr. Brown, and yet-to-be-understood kidney damage. The end of my 22nd year spun off the path of grandiose expectations and careened right off a cliff. And not to mention, this this seems like an apt thing to talk about. Um, one of my kids briefly landed at my house after college, but it ended as quickly as possible. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, not not because we have a bad relationship, but just because that's not what you're about at that age, right? You're, yes. Your momentum is out. Yes. So you both were agreed that you wanted to end it as quickly as possible. I think she was mixed in this in the coziness of it, and my mm -hmm. second wife was a little better at saying, okay, you can live here, but where's the rent? And you know, yeah, <laughs> all that. But no, I don't think she wanted to linger. She wanted to get a job and, yeah. you know, and then, so then to have already done that, to mm -hmm. have already left, to, to have already created a life for yourself as demanding as it, I think it was, because you had to work in order to afford being in an internship and you know the right. things. Yeah. but to all of a sudden be with your parents I want to hear about that that was really um it was so many things I mean it was so hard but like I said I thought it was temporary and I wanted it to be temporary but I also felt guilty um and I felt ashamed. Like, I, I've always wondered why we ladle shame on ourselves for things that, you know, we attach shame to everything. And so I had this sudden illness, and then I felt ashamed about that. Um, 
like somehow I had willed it upon myself. But I felt it was regressive. Like I felt like what is happening here? I was this independent person just like launching. And now I'm in the same bedroom that I grew up in. And my mom is like caretaking for me. But then on the flip of that, I appreciated that my mom was doing this so much because it's just so clear how much she loved me and how horrible this was for her to see me go through this. And she wanted me to get through it and get on with my life too. So it was filled with so many different emotions, but um, it, I was I was sad. I was sad that it had happened and I was sad that I was no longer who I was. I felt like I had lost myself and mm. that regressive feeling of being independent and then back at home was, it was really steeped in a lot of sadness. And that seems, seems natural, but then it also does seem natural that you would have shame if the basic idea is our mind creates what happens. Yes. A, a kind of cut and dried, you know, we think things and then they happen. Right. Um, I, I have some about that in the overall in the world, right? Right. But wouldn't that naturally lead to shame? It's if, the flip side of the Bernie Siegel. Like, if I can think my way out of this, did I think my way into it? Exactly. And And I have to say... That has been a common re refrain in cancer groups that I've that I've led, yeah. um, and it's torturing if you have that idea, and yet it is. And people will say directly, "What did you do to cause this?" You know, uh, it gets reinforced. I, I'm assuming it did for you that people, people say crazy things. I mean, and I, I I think so many. Everyone's so well-meaning. They sometimes they don't even know what they say is going to be harmful. But I remember somebody said, well, you always were a little bit of a hypochondriac, weren't you? And I was like, what? <laughs> like, you know, like, does that make any sense? Um, you think like that inoculate you. Say if you that worry again? About your, if you worry about your health and take care of it, logically, yeah. it would inoculate you, not make you sick. It's just, I, and then sometimes I think people want to say things so they don't think it will happen to them. Um, you know, really? so they'll say an odd comment that makes them feel insulated from this random, horrible thing ever happening to them. And I, and especially at that age, people have very little experience as you were alluding to before, you know, as you go through life, people, you see more people who have more things and it's, not like it is when you're in your 20s and it seems like everybody has a good life. So people, they didn't know what to say. And um, it was awkward to try to have conversations about it. And so then I wouldn't want to talk about it because it was awkward for me to know what to say as well. So just a lot of awkwardness in that whole stage of, of this chronic illness. I'm, I'm smiling over here because uh, my wife seem to make a hobby of developing things to say. Uh, you know, she was sick for almost 10 years, so yeah. she had a time to develop things to say. But because if you don't say anything, you've kind of left it stand, haven't you? Um, so I wonder if you've, you've dealt with this for a long, long time. 
I, I wonder if you have more ready replies now, or perhaps the people who never evolved out of that aren't in your life anymore, you know, but um, do you feel a, a, a greater ability at this point in your life to kind of nip that in the bud if people come from that point of view? Yeah, and far less people come from that point of view, but um, the people who are afraid to say something, I just feel this weird energy in a room that, you know, I, that there's this like unsaid thing, but we all know. And so I usually just say something. I like if they know I've had treatments or something has happened or whatever, I'll just say, well, you know, I've been doing these treatments and I go every Monday and whatever. And when I do that, then I can see them relax, like, okay, I didn't know if I was supposed to bring it up. or um, So that's one of the things that I do is just say something straight yeah. out. Yeah. And then for little things like when, you, when you're on dialysis, you get an access put in your arm and it's called a fistula. It's not attractive. It looks like a bulge on my left arm. And I don't really like to show it off. I pretty much cover it up. But there have been times where, you know, if it's like 95 degrees or something, I'm going to be like, whatever. And random people like like store clerks. I remember one guy said to me, what happened to your arm? And I've come up with for that one. I just say I just I had surgery. Like, that's the quickest thing that I could say. And I don't need to like, can you imagine if I went into a long winded explanation about, well, when I was 22 and blah, blah, blah. So I come up with some quick responses to things like that. So I just don't need to go into too much about it. It's reminding me of the evolution of, of uh, the, this is completely different um, because it's a positive thing about me, but um, coming out to people used to be hard. Uh, when yeah. I was 18 and I, you know, figured about, it's like a big deal every time. Right. Now I say, oh, my wife and I went to the store, you know, it's yes. not, it's a non-issue and people tend to, I rarely have someone bristle when I'm that matter of fact. Yes. Is that some of what you're, you're talking yeah. about? I do live in California. So that's, yeah. Okay, I, but I, um, but I think, I think there yeah. is that a piece of that that if you're comfortable with yourself, at the at the very time when you need that, you don't have it. Yes, and when it's you so don't true. Need it, you have it, right? That you're so comfortable with your own life story that yeah, people don't throw you off as much. And I I think that like we set the tone now, so. If I say, yeah, you know, this and that, I mean, I have to tell people what my book's about now all the time. And I had to think about that in advance, like, and this has been a big part of this book process for me, because I, I would have never written this book years ago. I mean, I could have never have talked so much about this, you know, incurable optimism and illness as I do now. And I think a big part of that is just the progression of where I've come in my life. Because when I was so young, I, I just very often thought to myself in a very strong way, I'm not going to let this illness define me. I'm not going to do it. And I went on to do some really wonderful things. And I had such a great career in the custom home building business, which I still do a little consulting in, but I've kind of branched into this author and nonprofit person. Um, 
but I would have never told my clients about all of these things. And I thought like the world would have stopped, you know, I was like, that's not going to define me. And then I got to the point where it can't define me because I've already done so many other things. And it made me feel so liberated that, you know, while I was doing all those other things and working with all of you on your homes and, you know, having a lovely life, I was dealing with a lot of things underneath. And, and like you were saying, you wanted your work to reach more people with your podcast than your one-on-ones. Um, that's how I felt. Like, I have been dealing with something that maybe a lot of people are dealing with things that they don't want to tell people about. And let's mm -hmm. just all talk about it. Like the world won't stop. And so it's been very liberating in that way. Because, because it's a big part of your experience. So ironically, eventually it could lead to not feeling like yourself. If you're yeah. leaving out this big thing that influences yeah. you, that affects you, and that has grown you. Right. Uh, if you leave that out, how do you feel like yourself in the other direction? But I think there's something here about development because when I when I work with people at that young stage, there's a drive to continue to develop your life. Mm -hmm. Right? To have right. a career, to find someone to marry, to hopefully have children, all those things you don't want to give up that developmental process either. Yes. You kind of kept going. And I've seen that with other young people I've worked with, the drive to keep going, even though this thing is going on. Yes. And, and it's a very strong drive. Very strong drive. And not to want anyone else to stop you in your tracks and think you can't do those things because this is going on. Right. So maybe you don't want to be limited. And I remember when I was on dialysis, um, the social worker came up to me one day and said, I think you are inspirational to other patients and maybe you would consider a career in, you know, social work and dialysis. And, and when she said that, I so instantly thought, are you kidding me? I would never, never. ever, ever. She was very premature, life. wasn't she, Jennifer? Very yes. premature. She's Let's so premature. Let's take another break and we'll come back and talk more because that's that just uh, tickles me. You know, the, <laughs> the things that people suggest about us that are totally wrong at the time. But later, it seemed to we seem to evolve into them. Yep. Full circle. You can go to my website, goodgriefwithcheryl.com. You can go to the Good Grief Host page at Voice America to find all my links. And to find Jennifer Kramer Miller, go to jennifercramermiller.com. Back after the break. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, Follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Jennifer Kramer Miller, and I, I want to, I should have said sooner, it's C-R-A-M-E-R. Miller is obvious about her book, Incurable Optimist. And um, Jennifer, I I think in this final segment, um, I usually circle around to what, obviously it's been laced through what you've learned from yeah. the experiences you've had, but very specifically, one thing that stands out um, that we were talking about on the break is the awareness of helpfulness in others, people that actually want to support you, whether they always know how to or not, but you had right. some pretty good luck that way. And also um, moving past the idea of being damaged, mm-hmm. being being damaged goods, you know, which of course you have to, if you're going to do if you're going to have your life, marriage, a child, I know you're married. I know you had a child, right? right. You can't maintain entirely this sense that there's um, something terribly wrong with you as a person. Right. There's yeah. just what you're dealing with that that um, affects things, of course. But um, let's start with talking about helpers. Uh, yes, because when you mention like things that I've learned in so many layers, I've learned this just about the power of people helping people. And it, it got to a grand level when I had people donating kidneys to me, like my mom and my husband. I mean, miracles. And also through registered organ donation, all of that is just immensely. We say you've had four kidney transplants. I've had That's four kidney transplants. Highly unusual. and <laughs> Yes. And um, there. in over three decades, four kidney transplants, it's not your average thing. But so I always want to tell people when they hear that, but I've had a good life. Like I need to add the butt in there because 
um, it's just, it's been through the power of people helping people that I've been able to keep going. So we had talked about that a little bit about reading something from the book about it. And this is not on as grand a level. It's what I've noticed in kind of the minute helpers or the everyday helpers. And um, so one of the things was when I was young, still 22, I was in the hospital and um, a priest appeared and he asked if I wanted to have a blessing. And I felt a little shy about it. Like, I don't know if I'm religious enough to receive it or, but I wanted it. I craved it really. So I, I said, yes, it was sort of a craving rooted in hope and healing. And I wanted to feel like I belonged to the world. So this is what I wrote, just a small section in the book about that. This lovely religious man helped me float beyond the confines of my damaged vessel. And I tapped into an enormous energy field of hope. It was freeing, like a long exhale after holding your breath. In creative visualization, Shakti Gawan suggests we're all part of the energy of the universe. I wanted that to be true. And at this moment, I believed it was. So I'll read a little bit more, but this was making me reflect on that feeling of connection and goodness and how it was coming in so many directions. And so I wrote, maybe all the people who loved me and all the people who offered to pray, all the authors who wrote books about healing, all the doctors who devoted years to medical training, all the nurses, musicologists, arm pullers, and now this priest comprised this universal goodness. And so I have learned that there is a web of goodness out there. And I think that we're all a part of it and we all can hold each other up with it. And it was um, a powerful lesson and something that I carry with me all the time. And I, I think we can all notice it. It's like the Mr. Rogers mom comment about look for the helpers. Um, there are always helpers and we have it in us. Like if you hear somebody that you know in your community is is sick or needs help or had a fire at their home or whatever it is, so many of us, I think almost all of us, rise up to help other people. And I just felt really tapped into that web of goodness that I, I learned through this experience. The other thing that stands out to me there is um, I, I thought of a particular example. My my parents are no longer living, but they were churchgoers, and uh, they were invited to a prayer circle when my first wife was sick, and it was a very diverse prayer circle. There were all different faiths as a part of it, but they got together every couple of Friday nights and sat and prayed together. And um, neither of us were, we were very spiritually inclined, but right. not religious. But it was such a blessing thought that these strangers would, it was no surprise my parents were doing it. Yeah. But the fact that these strangers particularly kept her in mind. It's powerful. Was, was so powerful and sweet. And, um, uh, it, you know, there was one point in my life where I would have said, don't pray for me. <laughs> you know? right. Right. My dad was a minister. I had to rebel against that. You but had to. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, 
but but at that particular moment to know people thought of us yeah people thought of us is a beautiful thing whether it changes anything or not it's a beautiful thing isn't it it's a it? beautiful thing it really uh, is yeah hopefully you know in my community um of course prayer is tainted because a lot of people's parents have tried to pray the gay away and all that yeah. my parents fortunately were not wired that way but you know it right. can be painted, but just the idea of sending good wishes for right. some best. Uh, I love that. And I think we feel it. I think it changes the energy around us when we know that there are people out there who are wishing us well. And speaking of influencing health, they have done some double blind studies on that, comparing a group that's prayed for to a group that isn't. Yeah, I've seen that. It does make some statistical difference. It's but kind of magical. I, I mean, yeah. Yeah, but but even if that is not true, the impact emotionally yes. is all helpful, even if it doesn't make anything better per se. Well, I feel that way about hope. I'm a big fan of hope. And you know, I don't think there's any double blind studies on hope. And I don't think that we're <laughs> gonna prove anything about hope, but boy, it feels so much better to have hope fuel our way because you know hope makes you feel like maybe things can be okay and who doesn't want to feel like that yes and and it's aren't we always um hopefully <laughs> um responding to whatever's happening in the best way we can Yes. That's the goal, isn't it? It's so such the goal. That, speaking of that, I really don't want to let you out of here without saying that I so enjoyed not just the fact that you met your husband and um, allowed yourself to be loved and not, and not um, you know, you didn't over-interpret, I shouldn't make this hard on anyone. You know, you yes. let him join you in it uh and and eventually I'm fast forwarding had a child you know all of that yes but I also appreciated very much that you talked in a real way about the impact on a marriage of dealing with ongoing health um, challenges and that there's a way to share it together there's a way to be together in it and there's a way to not be uh, it's I so funny you bring this up. That well. So many people have commented on how much they enjoyed that part of dealing. And, and I really felt it was important to include because um, my husband is a bit of a hero in this story and he's a bit of a hero in my life, but it would be unrealistic to think we've been married through all these years through three kidney transplants. I mean, there was, I had one without him in my life. And not have to face how it is to manage these big issues together as two people with very different coping skills. So um, it's interesting you bring that up because I've heard that from a number of people that they really appreciated that I addressed um, how we navigate our marriage with these issues. And that you can lose your way for a while, right? Um, and yeah. say, maybe he doesn't love me anymore. Maybe this is too much. 
but I appreciated that you found the courage to uh, face it. Yeah. You know, face the impact and fa- and you were very self-disclosing about um, your own. Uh, he had his way of, of, going into a let's not talk about it and so did you just different ways but the same subject right Um, I appreciate the message that talking about it is the only way through Um, yes and it clears the uh, air if it's not yeah absolutely my first wife and I had very little conflict but that's because we talked about it all the time (laughs) <laughs> we never did talk about it you know yes. it was open subject all the time we didn't need to talk about it as often as time went on because yeah. it came to life as it is but that sense of um it's it's finding a way to share it together that really is is the yeah. bottom line isn't it? yeah um, yeah and it's so easy to, to withdraw it's so easy to withdraw and not share the the hard things and then it's sort of counterintuitive but when you share the hardest things it gets so much easier <laughs> and of course that's also i do a lot of couples counseling uh yeah couples without this big elephant in the room right. um that they're both trying to cope with have the same problems of different coping styles conflicting with each other and not being able to get to the conversation under that. I mean, I work with that every week. So yes, um, sure. sometimes yeah. sometimes it pushes, doesn't it? When you're really dealing with a huge outside thing, you can't get away with it for too long, can you? No. I mean, you can only be in a marriage and try to protect your own self for so long before you realize, oh, there's another person here and they have a way too that we have to bring these ways together. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that you see the threads of that. You you knew that about him when he was thinking about marrying you. He kind of withdrew, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I really wanted our to narratives in our minds. Sometimes we tell ourselves stories like, "Okay, well, it's because I'm not lovable. This is just coming circling back." And so we have to stop saying those narratives inside our own heads and get the words out to another person to really flesh it out. At least I'm confused. I don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Something's weird, you know. Something's weird. Yeah. We, we, yep. don't, we don't have enough worked out to say more than that. I've yeah. noticed. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, just in terms of you asking too about the takeaways that I've noticed, I think one of the best things is I find that if we seek beauty, we will find it. And there are so many ways to just distill life into a mini moment where you love the color of a blue sky or a ripe avocado or a robust cup of coffee. And sometimes, you know, when things feel like they're taken away, we get a lens to see things with such clarity that it's pretty great to be alive. <laughs> what a great place to stop for the day. I've really enjoyed it, Jennifer. And I really hope people go to your your website and find your book. I, I love the book, jennifercramermiller.com. It's C-R-A-M-E-R Miller.com. Next week, I'll have Kevin Hines. 23 years ago, Kevin jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and immediately regretted it. Although he still has suicidal thoughts sometimes, he vowed that day that he would never act on them. Since then, he's become a mental health advocate and source of inspiration for thousands of people. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl 
Espinosa Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.